0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak David Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and is not Russian Pravda. We have started our conversation talking about Germany and about what German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is doing or not doing regarding Ukraine. But, at perhaps inimitably, we have moved our discussion to what is going on in America and what might happen. And the question is Does the Russian President Vladimir Putin only need to survive until Donald Trump will be back in the White House? At the annual Globsec conference in Bratislava, I talked to Rachel Farisa. She is a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center, where her research focuses on European security, NATO, and the transatlantic relations. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Let's start our conversation with what's going on in Germany. From your perspective, how much is the criticism that especially German Chancellor Olaf Scholz faces in regards to Ukraine justified? Do you think that sometimes it's a bit overblown? Or (laughs) we should perhaps lash and bash Germany even more?
1: I think the criticisms that are levied at Germany, especially from the United States, are a little bit overblown, especially over the last few months. And the reason I say that is because I think it's hard to underestimate what a strategic shift the last few months has been for Germany. This is not just about decreasing reliance on Russian energy. It's not just about sending weapons into a conflict zone. This is a complete reorientation of the German economy, but it's also a reorientation of the German mindset, which is a really big deal. And this doesn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think what we've seen has been laudable. It's something that we should celebrate. We can also criticize the details, Right, The the amount of time that it takes the German parliament to make a decision or to decide how to spend the $100 billion from the Sondervermorgen. But I think that we have to stay focused on the fact that this has been a huge shift for Germany. And it allows us to push them even farther, I think, in the future. Once Germany has shown us what they're capable of doing and capable of, you know, sending if, if they decide to, then that gives us an idea of how far we can also continue to sort of push in the future, right?
0: You mentioned criticism from the U.S. side, but Germany is criticized especially from the Central and Eastern Europe for being slow in sending heavy weapons to Ukraine and for trying to talk to Russian President Vladimir Putin. When you said that we might have a chance to push Berlin even more, into what direction should we push Schultz and Germans? These days, I often hear a quote from the Polish ex foreign Minister Radek Szygorski. He said, I fear German power less than German inaction.
1: I think when it comes to, for example, decreasing reliance on Russian energy, that's something that we need to push to ensure Germany delivers on. And I think the timeline they they've laid out is realistic. I think a complete shut off of Russian energy to Germany now would create would basically wreck an economic havoc. But we need to make sure that they stand by their decision and uh, their promise to wean themselves off Russian energy. With of the, the, I think it was at the beginning of next year or something. And I think Germany is also coming to terms with the fact that like, they've made some mistakes in foreign policy over the last couple of decades, and this is one of them. I think we can also push them pretty hard on, um, if I'm not mistaken, the $100 billion where that was going to be spent was agreed upon yesterday or the day before, and I haven't looked closely into where that's going to go yet. But Germany, I think, needs to come to terms with the fact that it needs to invest heavily into its armed forces. It needs to have a ready, capable military, something that it has not had for a while. We talk to many people in Germany or the German military, and they talk about underinvestments and lack of attention. And I think that's something that Germany needs to focus on. But it's also something that I think the U.S. and Europe can push them on as well. I know in the past, people have been on the fence about german power this this concept of german power i think we need to move past that it's it's past time that we we move beyond that framework and come to terms with the fact that germany as the most powerful economy in europe should also have a powerful military but with that it needs to rethink the role that it plays in Europe and as a global actor, right? And that means being more active in conflicts when they find themselves um, on Europe's door or on the European continent.
0: Do you think that Scholz will at one moment move towards the things you mentioned? We see interesting dynamics within the German government. Social Democrat Scholz is a real successor to Christian Democrat Angela Merkel. Like her, he strives to be pragmatic and he's not taking too much risks. However, Foreign Minister anna Baerbock from Greens is much more vocal about what Germany should do than the Chancellor. Do you think that we will see a different Schultz, in the future?
1: Obviously, you can't predict the future, but to have an idea of where we might go, it's probably important to look at the past. And the past shows that, I mean, Schultz is not, he's not a transformational leader. He's not like the Obama of Germany, right? He didn't run on a platform of transforming Germany. He ran on a platform of what I like to call Merkellian stability. He was a continuity chancellor candidate. He was not looking to shake things up, per se, or make massive changes. You know, looking at like the German immigration system, for example, that was one of them. Investing more into the sustainable development and focusing on climate. But when it comes to the German military or the German mindset of the role that it plays as an actor in Europe, like he was not running on a platform of like, Germany needs to be more forward leaning. Germany needs to be a more heavy handed actor. The coalition agreement did say that they need to focus on more Europe, which I think could mean a deeper Franco-German partnership when it comes to this idea of european strategic sovereignty this has to move past being a pet project of emmanuel Macron, and it has to be something that the germans are on board with so if we can move schultz in that direction to make europe a more capable actor then that's that's some that's a goal that i think europeans and germans should work towards whether it happens or not
0: you know that's something else and I would say that it will largely depend on the war in Ukraine. It will be difficult to consider the European Union as a real geopolitical player if it is unable to help stop Putin.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're going to be taken seriously, you have to take yourself seriously, and you have to invest in the right capabilities and be willing to step in when the situation calls for it. Um, I think Germany did step up to the plate, but wasn't easy. It hasn't been easy, and it will continue to be a struggle, I think. Looking forward, I think Putin is banking on Western fracturing the longer that this goes on. Putin and other autocrats around the world have been surprised at the unity of Western institutions. They've been surprised at the unity of the U.S. and Europe when it comes to implementing sanctions packages and a pretty much unified Europe when it comes to the realization that they need to decrease their dependency on, on Russia as a continent. My worry is that the farther that this goes down the line and the longer that it plays out, the harder it's going to be to keep certain states in line. Some states will maybe start to ask for cargouts, and
0: And it's already happening. We have seen this in particular in the case of Hungary in the negotiations on the six sanctions package. It wasn't just oil. At one point, Budapest demanded, ridiculously demanded, that Russian patriarchy should be not on the sanction list. It really sounds like throwing slash blackmail. Every round of sanctions are a little bit more painful also for us. Yeah, exactly. I would say. So, I, as you said, I think they are absolutely right. The Putin might simply betting on the fact that we will be fed up with this.
1: And I think you also have to remember, which I'm sure you do, that the U.S. has the midterm elections coming up in November. Unity around Ukraine, support for Ukraine is already being used as a political tool. We're seeing high inflation rates in the United States. Americans are paying way too much at the gas pump. But then they see us sending $40 billion of aid to a country that many people couldn't point out on a map, and they question that. And that's, that's something- more
0: Politicians, are op- oh, they're, they're, especially Republican politicians are openly, open, some of them are openly even to Donald Trump.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and, and so that's gonna be something that I think politicians are going to use leading up to the midterms to criticize the Biden administration, to criticize NATO, which we've seen happen in the past, and to use to get political clout. And so I worry that after November, if we see a Republican-led Congress, Senate, and the House, I worry about what that means for, you know, Mm -hmm. like Finland and Swedish NATO membership, for example. I'm not ready to say that I don't think it will happen, but it's something that's on my mind because, you know, treaties have to be Ratified by the U.S Senate, and if you have a Republican-led Senate, and you know depending on how many of those are Trump loyalists, what, what, what happens? I don't really have an answer for it, but it's a question I'm asking.
0: Yeah But then I will ask you directly, do you think it might be enough for Putin to basically survive until 2024 when Trump could be reelected to the White House? Would the Kremlin like it? You try to influence it? directly or indirectly, former Trump's national security advisor John Bolton said that the Republican president has been considering that he might leave NATO if he would win the 2020 election and then this is also a huge problem for for you mm-hmm. at that moment so how much should we be worried about
1: you know the last few months there has been a lot of talk of you know the future of Putin in 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 Russia and how Bad sanctions are going to bite, and if that can somehow bring down the Putin regime or create a situation where oligarchs no longer have access to their assets in the West, and so they turn on him, I think that scenario is pretty unlikely. Or another scenario that people ask about is, you know, the, the, this was not this is not the the war of the Russian people. This is the war of Vladimir Putin, and they don't support this. Well, a lot of Russians actually do support it so i don't think there's going to be any popular uprising that even if there was i don't know that it would go anywhere so it it seems like the only the real option is if sanctions that the west implements stay strong and continue to continue to strengthen and the russian economy essentially collapses even then i don't know if that means that putin will be gone so I say all this to say all signs point to Putin still being there in, in a few years. The question is, where's the United States going to be in a few years? And I don't completely discount the possibility that Trump will at least run again. If he doesn't, you could see a scenario where Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida decides to run. He's given the green light by Trump. You know, I think the only good advice that Rudy Giuliani has ever given <laughs> to Trump is that um, ooh, I think that he told him that he should run again because you can explain away one loss, you can't explain away a second loss. So if you want to, if you want to keep your legacy and keep your base, this Trumpist American base, cut your losses now, don't run again, and continue to be the sort of figurehead of uh, populist Trumpist America. But I do think there is a scenario where we could see a president who is of that ilk, but maybe not as critical, harsh toward international institutions as Donald Trump might be. Like I don't think that any other president would say that the United States or threaten the United States uh, is going to withdraw from NATO. But that's also why it's important to, to, I think, have it like ratified in the Senate that the president cannot unilaterally withdraw the United States from, from its, its alliance.
0: But even if he won't be able to do this unilaterally, if any American president would say that he or she wants to see the U.S. out of NATO, it would have tremendous consequences.
1: Oh, it would be huge, and I don't think he would have the support for it. I, I mean, I do think that I don't know what the red line is for Republicans in Congress, but it,
0: for some, no
1: for points. some, it does. It seems like the red line keeps moving and moving depending on where Trump goes. But for traditionalists, it seems like that would be would be something that would be tough to it would be a tough sell. You know, the, the hard part, though, is that what's happened over the last I mean, really, since Trump started running in 2015, we've never seen America so polarized. The difference between now and other eras of polarization in the past is that the traditional structure that has underpinned the international order, as we call it, is now being called into question by political leaders in the United States. And that's something
0: that I don't think we've seen before.
1: So that, I think, is what makes this moment different for other moments.
0: Yes, this is a good point. You can trace political polarization in the US decades back, but the international situation was different at the time. And it leads me to a question, how would America under Trump react to Putin's war against Ukraine? How different would it be now?
1: The reason that I would be especially concerned about a second Trump presidency is because presidents are often unleashed in their second term. The first term is getting their feet under under them, testing the waters, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And I think what the four years of Trump showed was that more things are acceptable to bring into the political discourse than we might have thought. And the worry for me is what he might act on versus what he he would just heap in the political discourse. Because what we saw during this first term was a lot of bluster, was a lot of criticism towards Europe, criticism towards NATO. Germany. Germany. But really like one of the only actual policies that came into play were Section 232 uh, tariffs. Everything else was just really damaging rhetoric. And so my worry is when that rhetoric crosses into actual policy decisions and what that would mean for the U.S., and that I don't know.
0: So one last thing. What should Europe do now? We are similar looking at Putin and at the U.S., waiting for the midterm results and for the presidential elections in 2024. And we are still discussing strategic sovereignty, and as you said, I, it cannot be just Macron's bad project. So what should Europe do, taking into account all the uncertainty? And by the way, is it something we could do to help America to overcome its political polarization?
1: Living up to its defense spending pledges is one of them. I think the one thing that has come out of this invasion is that it's been a wake-up call for Europe. It's also been a wake-up call for the United States. But I think for Europe especially, it's an opportunity to really take stock of where the continent wants to be as a union of 28 members, right? And as many of those overlap with NATO. And so I think being a more forward-leaning actor geopolitically in terms of a coherent foreign policy, coherent policy toward China, even though I think that will be increasingly difficult. And we're going to have to accept that certain states will have their own bilateral relationships. But if we can agree on the high level stuff like tech regulations and solidarity with countries like Lithuania who find themselves in the crosshairs of Chinese um, wrath, I think that's important. Having coherent plans when it comes to how defense dollars will be spent, and where they'll be invested. And this isn't just for NATO. This has to be an EU discussion as well. What that means for the United States is that we need to stop pushing back on the European Union when they had these discussions. Over the last couple of decades, it's been really tough for Europe because the US sends mixed signals where we say we want them to do one thing, and then when they do, we Push back. Look at PESCO in 2017, for example. It's a classic example of that. True. Yeah. But when it comes to small things like military mobility, it's actually a big thing. More coherent cyber policy. I mean, I think just being a more formidable actor on the world stage will do Europe, will serve it well going forward. And it will make it less likely to be on the receiving end of US. <laughs> criticism if we get to a point in 2024 where there's a Trump or Trump-like president in office. Let's all hope that that doesn't happen.
0: This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.